Hey there, and welcome to the Victory Cigar Podcast. My name is Connor, and I'm the host of this show. You are listening to episode number four. You can expect a variety of discussions about sports here. The MLB, NFL, NBA, NHL, and NASCAR racing will be the focus of the show, but I will talk about just about anything that grabs my attention in the world of sports. On today's show, we're going to discuss how the MLB rule changes have impacted the game so far, about oh, a little over two weeks into the season. We're going to go actually over to the NFL and talk about some of the Lamar Jackson saga. We're going to preview the NHL playoffs as well as give kind of a recap on NASCAR the last few weeks. I haven't been here, haven't been able to record an episode in a while because uh, I've been out of town, been busy, was sick for a little while, finally trying to get my voice back and feeling better and everything, but we're here now. So let's jump right into the first order of business, which is the MLB rule changes and how they have impacted the game uh, about a little over two weeks, almost three weeks into the season, really. Uh, If you listen to the previous episode, I believe we discussed, yes, we did, we discussed the MLB rule changes, uh, what was going to be coming. So I'll give you a a brief recap on what those changes are and what my opinions of them were, Uh, and then we'll compare and see how we're doing here as uh, the season has gotten well underway here. So the rule changes, the three rule changes, the major ones at least, um, heading into the season were made in an effort to pick up the pace of play of the game and make the game faster in, in a actual uh, literal sense with time, the time of time, full time of games. Uh, because the, the, Games, the MLB games had gone up in time drastically from uh, starting in about the early 90s, really around the lockout, uh, early to mid 90s, the the time of games had gone up quite significantly to what we were more used to in, uh, there's actually recorded data, I believe, all the way back to 1936 for the average length of game per game in the MLB and give or take, it was about two and a half hours all the way up until about uh, the early nineties. As I was discussing in the eighties, it had gone up a little bit. It was about two, two hours, 40 two forty two, you know, low, low two forty, something like that, but not too bad still. Um, But that probably had something to do with the emergence of all the, you know, games being broadcast more on TV. You get ad time, all that stuff. And that is part of what happened in the the 1990s and 2000s all the way up to the present day. But in addition to that, the players hold some some sort of um, responsibility in that, too. The games were just getting longer. Pitchers taking longer time. Batters taking longer time in between pitches, all that stuff. Anyway, that's a little recap of what led to these changes was the 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 time of the games going up and what the changes are about now. So what are the changes? Well, the first one being that, um, the bases were enlarged by three inches. I think they went from 15 inches in diameter to 18. And the reason that they decided to do that, or it was a twofold reason, according to the MLB, they said that, the larger bases would help reduce injuries at first base, specifically from people running into each other, you know, running hard down the line, running into the first baseman who's expecting to throw, and that can always be a little dicey. So they they claimed that 
there was a drop off in injuries when they tested these in the minor leagues over the last at various points over the last couple of years. They claimed something like a 11 percent drop off in injuries or something. But the second reason being that they wanted to encourage base stealing more. And you'd think, man, well, it's three inches. That, that doesn't seem like it helps that much. Right. Well, it does. It does. You know, the stealing bases. It's a matter of milliseconds and inches for sure when it comes to stealing bases um, successfully in Major League Baseball. Uh, the catcher's arms are so strong and they're so accurate. And the those uh, second base or short stops that are down there to receive the throw are uh, so fast on the tags. They're uh, they're they're so fast on the tags, snap tags, and uh, it really does matter. And uh, so that's that's the first rule change that they were making because they wanted to encourage um, more thievery on the base paths. And to be honest, there most certainly was more of a a base stealing aspect of the game in the past uh, that had been kind of lost by basically the athletes getting bigger and stronger and. Uh, more efficient at at uh, getting the ball down there and and getting outs. Um, but uh, I really didn't see that as a very much of a big deal. So I'll I'll announce each of these what these rule changes were and then tell you what I thought of the um, in our preview about three weeks ago. Last time we well no, actually last time we had an up, uh, episode uploaded was almost two months ago. Holy cow! Uh, so about six weeks ago. So. In the last episode, I thought that that wasn't a very big deal. Like the the size of the bases wasn't a very big deal, and if it increases more more movement on the base paths, you know, more power to it. But I, I didn't really see it as being this horrendous. You're ruining the game, kind of uh, situation. But the next rule change. So that that's what I thought of that. The next rule change uh, was the shift restriction. I think that's probably the best way to call it. It wasn't necessarily an outright banning of shifting, but it was most certainly a handicapping uh, restriction. So the basically infielders uh, on the left side of the infield have to stay on the left side of the infield. They cannot cross the second base bag and both feet have to be on the dirt at the time uh, of the pitch. So that's basically, I mean, that's the easiest way to explain it. And same goes on the right side of the infield. The infielders on the right side of first base, second baseman, they have to be on the right side of the second base bag. They cannot, and their feet have to be on the, the dirt. They cannot get in the grass, They and they cannot cross the bag. Uh, outfielders have no restrictions. They can still shift around. They could stand wherever they want in the outfield. And we've been seeing a few different tactics come into play. We've, been, we've seen the left fielder. Um, shift over to right field and play that short right field area where second baseman had been playing the last uh, several years. Second baseman, a typical lefty shift um, the last five, six years as the, as they got completely out of control was the first baseman would back all the way up to the, to the grass. So uh, let's give you an example. So let's say that uh, because I go to a lot of Texas Rangers games, I live in the Dallas area. I go to a lot of Texas Rangers games. If Corey Seager, left-handed, uh, $300 million man for the Texas Rangers, 
if he comes up to hit in 2022, the first baseman would basically hug the first base line all the way back uh, between like with the grass where the grass meets the dirt, um, all the way back, basically hugging that line. That was pretty much where you could expect him to play almost every single time, no matter what team it was that uh, that the Rangers were facing. Now, the second baseman would retreat, oh, I don't know, about 40, 50 feet. Yeah, it sounds about right. About 40 feet into right field. And in between the first baseman and where the second baseman would play in a typical alignment, if you, uh, if you will. So he would, he would retreat back about uh, 40 feet from his normal position and shift over to the left another, I don't know, 10, 20 feet or so, and would be playing basically short right field, as I'd call it. The right fielder would shift to basically hug the line. He'd, he'd play a normal outfield depth, but he would go hug the, the, the foul line um, in right field. Center fielder would shift over to right center field, and the left fielder would shift over to um, left center field, typically speaking. That's, that's around where they're hanging out. Now, what's the rest of the infield doing? That's, that's what's going on on the outfield grass. Well, the rest of the infield, the shortstop has shifted over to play usually either behind the second base bag or more of a traditional second baseman position. Shortstop is basically in a traditional second baseman position, while, of course, that second baseman is playing short right field. And the third baseman would shift over to play. It depended on the count. So early in the count, before there's two strikes, uh, the third baseman would usually play pretty much straight halfway between shortstop and, or sorry, between third and second base, halfway, um, usually right in the base paths um, or maybe a little further back. Uh, but when there's two strikes and the threat of a bunt is gone, that third baseman goes and basically plays shortstop, even shifted over a little bit harder than maybe shortstop at double play depth for, you know, the baseball fans out there that know what that means. So that was the kind of shift that Corey Seager could expect to see or any other left-hander, but I'm just, you know, detailing my experience from going to games and watching and watching these players move around. I was doing that. I was watching more of that with the, with the pace of the play and everything. I'm watching more of where the, the players are all shifting around the last several years where they're moving to play various, various hitters, all the scouting reports on every single hitter. Now, why did they ex- shift that extreme against left-handed hitters? Why did MLB feel as though they needed to make some restrictions, the restrictions I already laid out uh, there? Well, we discussed this in depth on the last episode. So if you want the full in-depth on that, you can go back and listen to that. But essentially, if you look at Baseball Savant, a great great, uh, statistical uh, resource for, uh, for baseball and for all sorts of things, uh, hitting, pitching, fielding, uh, everything, they have a great chart that you can go back all the way to 2016. That's, that's the first um, instance of them having the recorded data in depth like this to be able to offer. But you can go back to 2016 and compare it all the way up to 2022 and now 2023. But you can compare year over year how shifting got completely out of control. And specifically to left-handed hitters, that was the, the biggest thing 
because there's some science on that. We discussed that last episode as well. But uh, typically speaking, there are more right-handed pitchers in Major League Baseball. Their pitches tend to tail naturally to the left, which goes in on the hands of left-handed hitters, making it very difficult for left-handed hitters to use all fields. You'd have the old heads say, well, just hit it where they ain't. Hit it the other way. Well, that's a lot harder than... That's a lot harder than uh, than it seems, especially when there's basically that level of science behind that, that the ball naturally tails in on the hands. It's very difficult. If you have ever played baseball, I, if you've ever played baseball at a high enough level, you know, I'd say probably a, a high school, high high school level, junior, senior year, high school, you know, when you're varsity and you're playing, playing uh, some legit competition. If you've ever played at that level or or higher, then that is a ridiculous task, basically. You you know, if you've played at that level, you know how ridiculous of a task that is. Basically, when, when people are throwing the ball over about 80 miles an hour, that's a ridiculous task. And uh, that's the best way to put it. You know, yeah, you know, okay, Jim Bob, back when you were playing Little League and, and the kids were throwing 48 mile an hour heaters, you could take one the other way. But man, that definitely gets harder to take take something on the on the hands and send it the other way at a significant you know at a significant exit velocity at least to be to be able to get a hit. Uh, it's real hard. So lefties were far more disproportionately affected by this than right-handers for that very reason for the ball tailing the natural tail science. So of course, right-handed hitters. That's why they go well. Right-handed hitters. That guy he uses all the field. He hits the ball more to right field and. I'll say, well, yeah, when the ball tails away naturally to away from you, you push the ball and you're able to use more fields, uh, more of the field uh, naturally. So, uh, but of course, right-handers were getting shifted onto by the scouting report. It was like, well, this guy likes to hit it up the middle. So we're going to play this guy up the middle. We're going to do this. We're going to move it. So it, long story short on that, uh, to get to my opinion, so there's there there was the problem. The shift was out of control. They were doing it in every at bat to every batter, and the baseball had become a three true outcome sport. It was either you hit a home run, you struck out, or you walked. There were no base hits. There were no doubles. I'm of course being, you know, I'm 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 uh, being a little over the top on that, but it was man, it was hard for a lefty to buy a hit, right? It really was, and in particular, and and. Everybody, you know, you'd sit there, you're watching a game on TV, and you've got the view that you do on TV, right? You, you're behind the pitcher in the outfield. You're watching pitcher, you know, fires one in there, and the hitter rips one. You're like, oh, that's a base hit. That's a double. And then there's a guy standing there when the camera pans. You see a guy rip one back up the middle. Guy standing there. You're out. You see a guy rip one that looks like it's headed for the right center field gap. There's a guy standing there. Guy rips one down the line. There's a guy standing there. So... That was the problem that MLB, you know, that that is boring. It is boring. I know they, you know, every team was doing it because, of course, they all you saw the benefits. It was like, hey, look at this. We can align our defense basically perfectly for every batter, and the chances that we'll give up a hit are drastically lower. Well, it's boring. It's it's flat out boring. It's awful. It's awful baseball. It's a bad product. The MLB saw this. They'd been testing these shift uh, restrictions for. At least the entirety of last year, I know, but uh, they may have even tested them a little bit before that in some lower leagues as well. They tested them in double A last year, I think. Anyway, the shift, absolutely, there needed to be some changes done there. Uh, And as a result, 
they, you know, the MLB or the, the results that the MLB was looking for was an increased batting average, more runs being scored, more action on the base paths, more base hits, more doubles, more triples, all that, right? They wanted bat on the ball and the ball in play. They wanted fielders having to actually field. You know, what? what's the point? It doesn't matter. Somebody's defensive prowess doesn't matter. And defensive and defensive ability was minimized as a result because if you're told, okay, buddy, you know, okay, Francisco Lindor, just stand there and you'll get it every time, you know, as opposed to have him having to make a play, right? Um, because I, I used his name because he specifically brought it up last year when, when discussing the shift restrictions and said he totally welcomed it and he would love his opportunity to show off his defensive prowess um, and show his value on that side of the, on that part of the, part of the game. Baseball's two two parts of the game, defense and offense. There's some guys that are great with the stick and awful in the field, and you gotta you have to play around that. You have to strategize around that. There's some guys that are awful with the stick and they're phenomenal in the field. And uh, that's that's you know there's pros and cons, and then there's the rare unicorn that is both. But and those are the guys that get paid three hundred million bucks. But the the shift restrictions to move to my opinion on of my opinion is I think is pretty clear probably by the way I was describing them. I it was it's a terrible product. That that's my opinion as as I said there. It's a terrible product. Uh boring, awful, putrid ass baseball, to be honest with you. It's terrible. And that is not the essence of the game, if you will. Uh if you were to to, to try to boil it down that like that, it absolutely not. Terrible. So I welcomed, I had been screaming for the shift changes for years myself. I, I, anybody that's known me for a while knows that when I would talk about baseball and talk about the shift, I would talk about how much it needs to be eliminated. And pretty much they enacted the idea that I pretty much had. My idea was just don't let them go on the grass and don't let them cross the second base bag. And that's exactly what they did. It's, it was the most simple solution without having to draw more lines on the field or do anything stupid. It's the, it was the simplest solution. Uh, it seemed very, very, very easy. And and I, absolutely, I you know I think the the outfielders should be allowed to do whatever they want, but uh, infielders it was out of control. So anyway, uh, that that kind of sums up my uh, my position on that and what I've been saying. It, it's funny because originally my position was I was like, well, you know, uh, these guys, you know, because I, I would think about it and I go, well, there's been plenty of hitters that could use all the field. They could hit everywhere. So why can't these guys do it now? And then it was really more of, of my, because I, I played baseball at a high level and never really thought about it because I was a right-handed hitter. And I was like, well, you know, man, yeah, they could, you know, what what's, you know, what's stopping? I've, there's been a lot of great hitters in Major League Baseball that could use all the field. What's stopping them now? Well, it it made a hell of a lot more sense, you know, when, when it was put to me or uh, when I finally stumbled across that, you know, basically scientific explanation as to why. And that really uh, changed my opinion, snap of a finger. I, I thought, yep, that's that makes perfect sense. And uh, I'm on board. I'm all on board, all aboard the, uh, the shift change train. So anyway, uh, Major League Baseball, they uh, they made that decision uh, this past offseason. That was the one of the major rule changes. So the shift has been restricted, as I discussed. The final one was the... Uh, perhaps the most controversial one, which I will admit fully, I was um, against at first, just like the shift. I was against this idea at first. 
I am now on board with it. Um, and I was on board with it in the in the last episode. I explained why I was on board with it. But the most controversial change, the pitch clock. 15 seconds for the pitcher to throw the ball. Um, when there is nobody on base, 20 seconds to throw the ball when there is a runner on base. Now, I still probably wouldn't mind, uh, and it may not be a terrible thing if they extended that five seconds. That's what I mentioned in the last episode. Uh, but actually, after seeing it in fully in practice, because that last episode was just was just before the season started, it was really just before spring training even got going too. So we hadn't seen how that would play out at all. But it seems as though hitters have adjusted to it. Pitchers have adjusted to it. Some might still not be happy about it, but most most seem to go, well, those are the rules, you know, and we got to, you got to toe the line. You got to do, you got to follow the rules. So, and they don't seem to have too much of an issue with it. So the, uh, I'd, I'd still, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to that if they extended it five seconds just to, maybe that makes everybody uh, happier. But they, uh, they basically, MLB that is, they decided that, this was the best way to combat the length of games. Last year, we went over this. Like I said, we went over this uh, in the last episode in very great detail. So if you need the full minutia to all that, you can go listen to that. But uh, basically, the last uh, over about the last decade, the average time had been three hours or more in almost every year. It was three hours and six minutes for the average game last year. And that... There's 162 games. Three hours and six minutes for 162 games in this day and age, as I discussed in the last episode, so you'll get, you're getting my opinion here. My opinion is that... Okay, so hold on. Let me back up. The Originally, I was fully against this. I thought, that's ridiculous. Don't change the game. That's, that's so dumb. But then... What was presented to me was basically that the game is not the same. It is not at its core. The core of baseball has basically been the games were about two and a half hours for many years, you know, probably a hundred years, um, if you go all the way back into the, you know, the, the 19th century. But they, we, we don't have a hundred percent you know, confirmed statistical evidence of that. I think the earliest evidence we have is about 1912. But they actually have kept very good records on that. You can find those on Baseball Reference, I believe, under some of the miscellaneous stats, time of game, length of game, average length of game. But, so, I was originally very against it. Thought, don't change it. But then when I saw those numbers and I saw that it was really a recent trend, about a 25 years, the last 25 years, it was a recent trend for these games to be ridiculously longer, really, an extra 30, 40 minutes longer than uh, they were at the core of the game. You know, if we're talking about um, even from the very beginning or, or, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it's... It, and that's ridiculous. I mean, the, the, to be 30 or 40 minutes longer than those games were, that is definitely ridiculous. And it adds up. And I think that the viewer experience from home 
was impacted greatly by that. The MLB was, you know, losing viewers and wasn't as, as most certainly has not been as popular. There's been all sorts of factors into that, though. The strike in 94, the steroids in the late 90s, early 2000s, and the scandal that all that brought, uh, and then the length of games, and then the last decade, uh, give or take, trend of the three-true-outcome baseball and all that. So they... They needed to do something about the time, and I un- I understood. I saw those game times, and I said, I understand. I understand that you know in 1975 the the average length of the game was was two hours and 36 minutes, or two hours and 34 minutes, whatever it was, right? And that the average length of the game last year was 3:06 and 3:11 the year before that. And so to get to what I was saying about this day and age is that this day and age there's a lot of entertainment competing for people's not only money, but time. There's video games, there's Netflix, there's, uh, you know, there's all these other leagues that have come into their own as well. Of course, you know, when the MLB and NBA and NHL season are, are overlapping, the MLB and the NFL season overlap at the, at the end of the MLB season, there's a, there's a lot of product sports product out there to consume for the average person and there's only a limited amount of time and there's a limited amount of money on top of that too. That's it. That's a whole other thing. And we went into that a little bit uh, or quite a bit actually in the last episode as well, if you want to go back and give that a listen, but so there's a lot of, uh, there is a lot of uh, product out there, whether it's sports or like I said, video games and, and, and Netflix and, and all that. In, in, in entertainment, if you will, right? There's there's so many more television shows and movies and everything, and whether it's Netflix or on TV itself and all that stuff, Hulu and Disney Plus and everything else, right? All these these services, there's all these things competing for your your entertainment time, right? What how much time does the average person have every day uh, to spend on entertainment to 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 look and and be you know to pass the time and and uh, you know dive, dive into their interests, right? I'd say, a, you know, a single person, you wake up, you go to work, if, you know, if you work a typical uh, uh, nine to five, if you will, you know, eight hours a day, you come home, you've got, you know, you, you probably got to figure out something for, uh, figure out something for dinner and get that going. But, you know, what do you got? What do you got when you, when you work a nine to five and for your entertainment time, you come home, you're home six o'clock or something. You got, what, four hours, five hours before you got to go to bed and, you know, get, you know, get ready to think about that and do all that. So you got, you got four or five hours. How long's a movie? A couple hours. You know, how long do you want to sit down and play a video game? Hour, two hours, three hours, you know, and how long is a major league baseball game at that time? Three hours and six minutes, three hours and 11 minutes of your four or five, maybe six hours that you stay up. Or whatever, as a single person, you know, think about that too, right? And uh, that that you've got in every day, and that's eating a lot of it, you know, for one thing. Because of course, you know, you you probably don't just want to come home and watch Netflix for six hours. You're gonna do a couple different things. You sit down, play your game for a while, you know, watch the watch the baseball game, get some Netflix on, go to bed, whatever, right? Now, of course, that gets even trickier when you're a parent. When you're in a family, you know, let's say husband, wife, couple of kids, right? You've got how much entertainment time do you have husband, wife, and a couple of kids? 
damn near nothing, right? I mean, you you've got you're going to work, you're coming home, the kids have soccer practice, uh, dance practice. Uh, they want to go out for ice cream. The kids want to go see the latest Disney Pixar uh, installation in the theaters. So there's some of your money gone, some of your time gone and everything. They want to go do that. They want to go to the amusement park. They want to go to the fair. They, you know, whatever, right? You got all these things you got to go, you know, spend your time and money on, uh, especially in that capacity. So we went into depth on that in the last episode, but that's kind of just given that rundown, right? About you know, how much, how much time does the average person have? How much time does the average single person have? And, and are they spending their time doing that? How much time uh, does the average uh, married uh, family, you know, unit sort of have to spend on this and everything? And it's, it's difficult, you know, to get, to get, uh, to get everybody settled in and to, to watch a baseball game that might be three hours and 42 minutes, you know, or something. So uh, it could be, that could be real tough. And the MLB recognized that and decided they wanted to, uh, wanted to change that. And like, like I said, I was against the pitch clock at first. So, you know, kind of getting back on track, we got derailed a little bit there, but getting back on track, um, the pitch clock they figured was the best way to do that. It was the best way to reduce the time in the game. And again, I was against it at first, but I'm for it now, especially now that we're three weeks deep into the season. And, uh, having gotten to see it in action, both on TV and going to games. I've been to two games so far. I went to the home opener for the Rangers against the Phillies, in which they uh, they trounced them. I think it was like 11, well, trounced them, but 11 to 7. They scored a lot of runs. They had like a nine-run fifth inning or something. And then I saw DeGrom's uh, second home start, I think it was, um, against Kansas City uh, last week, or this week, earlier this week. But... Uh, so I went to uh, went to two games. So I've seen that in action in two games. I've watched games on TV. I've been watching my Yankees and everything too, uh, pretty much every day. And um, except for that horrendous shellacking against the Twins the other day, we turned that off real fast. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I was against it. I've seen it in action on TV and in person. I am for it. That is my opinion now. I am for it. It most certainly, it feels like you are watching a game that when you see those old highlights, you watch those old clips or those old classic games, or you even think back to when, like I think back to when I played in high school. I think back to when I pitched, you know, and everything um, in, in particular as a, as a pitcher and everything. I'd think back to that and I'm like, man, I'd get the ball back in my glove. I'd get on the rubber. I'd look in. I'd get the sign. We'd go through our motion and we'd throw the ball. And a lot, you know, you throw a ball, you just miss one. You know, you throw a real close fastball that he lays off of, or you you throw a you throw a you know a slider that just misses. And I wanted to get that ball back in my glove and get back on the rubber, and I wanted to get back in there and throw another one. I was ready, right? I was like, oh man, I just missed that one. I'm I'm not missing this one. Right? And you get in there, and um, you know, it, watching these games now, it feels like that. It feels like it feels like real baseball. You get the ball back. You, there's no messing around. You're not sitting there scuffing the ball a little bit and digging your cleats on the back of the mound and you know doing a little pace around it, stretching your back. Okay, we're on the rubber. We're looking in. We're looking in. The hitter calls time. Readjusts batting. You know, that's not that's not baseball. That's that's stupidness. It's, there's no other way to put that. And we're back to baseball. I think and. 
So resounding has been actually been a resounding thumbs up for me on that. And the games have gone by quicker and you're getting to the action. And uh, I think that's a good thing. So there you have it. Those those have been the rule changes. Those. Uh, so I gave you the rule changes, the background on why, and then my opinion on each of those things. I think it has been a, to me, a two thumbs up on all the rule changes uh, for, you know, personal opinions. Now, have the desired outcomes really come about of what they were trying to do with these changes, right? Short answer, yes, on all three. Stolen bases are up. Batting average is up. You know, but balls hitting grass, right? Balls finding grass and getting down and, and guys running the bases and everything. Yes. Uh, and have the games gotten shorter with the pitch clock? Hell yeah. Um, the average length of game at the moment, I believe, is two hours and 36 minutes after three weeks. I believe it's two hours, 36 minutes. I could be off by a minute or two there, but um, stolen bases are up a pretty significant percentage. I think it's, uh, yeah, 0.64 bases per game up from 0.51. Uh, that's, that's a fairly significant uh, change on that as well. And so across the board, yes, all of their changes have done exactly what they had hoped they would do. And I mean, it being down to two hours and 36 minutes, that is 30 minutes shorter than last year. And when you take that for 162 games, that matters. And it's nice to be able to sit down and watch a game and know, basically know or have a very good idea of when it's going to end and, uh, you know, be able to sort of plan around that or do things around that. And uh, I can understand people that are going to games that are complaining, going like, well, I liked it when the game was three hours because, you know, I paid money to come to the game and I want to sit and enjoy my beer and my pretzel and, you know, or whatever. So I, I get that too. And, uh, but the overall effect that this should have for everyone involved should be, this should be good. And, um, for all these rule changes. So, uh, I'll keep that short without having to go too deep into reading off the numbers or do anything. I gave you a little bit of that there, but yes, um, the the short answer is that each of the rule changes three weeks into the season has provided the result, the exact result that the MLB was looking for. More stolen bases, higher batting averages, and uh, shorter games. And I'll say this too, as to kind of wrap this up on on the MLB discussion. I'll say this as well. The I, when I was at the uh, home opener for the Rangers against the Phillies, like I said, like a nine run fifth inning, or or four, it was the fourth or fifth, but it was a nine run inning. And what was interesting was that I think there was one home run in that inning. It might have been two, but there was one. It got it started. It was a three run shot by Robbie Grossman. I know Brad Miller hit a home run in that game. I just can't remember if it was in that inning or it was, if it was later. Uh, I, I think it might have been later in the game. But basically all of that happened, that nine-run inning. I was sitting there, and as this inning is unfolding, and they're scoring these runs, they're smacking the ball all over the field, and I said, this is, this is a dream scenario for Rob Manfred and the MLB. This inning 
is exactly what the MLB was shooting for. And this game, the Phillies as well. The Phillies scored seven runs. They were hit. They, I think there was three triples in that game. Some more, a couple of doubles. There were hits all over the place. I don't think the Phillies hit a home run. I'm, I'm could be wrong, but I'm ninety percent sure that Philadelphia did not. No, sorry, they hit one. They hit one. They scored seven runs. They hit one. It was a two-run homer in the second inning. That was it. The other five runs came from singles, doubles, and triples. Running the bases, getting around the field, scoring runs. Um, so that was that game was like a dream scenario for ML, the MLB and, and Manfred and these rule changes. It was like, ah, oh, look at all these, look at all these hits. This is beautiful. And overall, that is how it has been um, in in across the league. But I I sat there on the first day of the season and watched that, and I said, this is exactly what they were trying to do. And I counted, I counted. I think between the two teams, or I think, yeah, I think it was between the two teams, I counted at least six hits that would not have been hits last year. And there was two or three more that were maybes, like they might not have been hits last year. Like I, I leaning towards, yes, they probably wouldn't have been hits last year, but there were like six hits that were 100% not hits last year. This was in the first game that I went to there. It was, it was, I, so that was, that played into that too, as I was sitting there watching all this unfold live and I was like, wow, this is baseball. This is what I remember. This is what I remember growing up. And, uh, that, that, that was a dream game. That was a dream game. And there's been a lot of them since then, uh, that the game since then and, and moving forward that will be exactly as they envisioned and exactly what they wanted. So, Sort of moving on from that, though, uh, the two thumbs up. That's, that's about all I can say. Two thumbs up for all the rules. There's your background on what they were or, or, or why they came to be, what they are, why they came to be, my opinion on them, and uh, what the results are so far. So we'll continue to monitor that and discuss it, I am sure, throughout the season here on the podcast. So the next segment that we're going to get to is... The Lamar Jackson uh, saga. I thought we would talk about this for a couple of minutes here. Little NFL, little NFL pause in the middle of uh, in the middle of April. But Lamar Jackson still doesn't have a team. He still hasn't been made an offer officially, as far as uh, anyone's aware. Uh, he was seeking. We don't know. He claims that reports that come out aren't true. Other people say he's not being completely honest. I don't know. But it sure sounds like Lamar Jackson was looking for that $200 million guaranteed deal like Deshaun Watson got from the Browns uh, last offseason. Lamar is, he's using, I think he's using his mother as his agent or a friend or something. He doesn't have an official agent, you know, like a legitimate agent from a from a sports agency. And he... It doesn't matter what the specific numbers are. It basically sure sounds like he's demanding a lot of guaranteed money. He wants a ton. He wants something around Deshaun's guaranteed money, whether that's 200 or 180 or 190 or 220. Nobody knows. But he wants a hell of a lot of money. And the truth of the matter is that 
with with the owners there's been discussions there's been articles written is is this collusion is this racism from the owners they're trying to you know lamar jackson they're trying to teach him a lesson they're trying to teach him a lesson but it doesn't have anything to do with race at all i i think that argument is so asinine it, it should get you laughed out of the building if you write for a publication and you present that to your editor if your editor had any sort of brains or balls he he would tell you to clean out your desk or at least to get down in the basement and work in records for a while because this is this is ridiculous no it doesn't have anything to do with race that lamar jackson is is being uh blackballed if you will from from receiving these offers or anything there is, you know, absolutely. Is there collusion in the in the literal definition of the word? Yes, because is Lamar Jackson a good quarterback? Could he could he help you know steer a franchise towards some some higher levels of success than than maybe somebody had been facing? Sure. Is he worth two hundred million dollars guaranteed? No. Is any quarterback in the NFL Mahomes? Uh, that list is very short and the thing with Lamar is it's about that the owners do not want to they do not want the Deshaun Watson contract to become the standard and for very good reason you know this is not like I'm licking billionaires boots or anything here but this is it's it's it just it absolutely seems ridiculous because this would reset the the quarterback market already got screwed up and reset because of that mid Prescott in Dallas uh, decided, hey, I'm average as hell. Give me one hundred and sixty five million dollars. And they said, OK. And so, you know, what do we see? We see Daniel Jones. What, what did Danny Dimes get? He got one one forty. Daniel got paid or one sixty or something like that. He got paid. As I said, as a Giants fan, I wasn't mad about that. It's it's a load. It's a front loaded uh deal where it's really not a four-year 160 million contract for jones i think it's more like it's a two-year 80 million dollar deal because i think they can get out of it after two years or something and that's how pretty much all the deals at all positions are going down in the nfl right now they're they're loading up a lot of like guaranteed money for two years but they're protecting themselves from signing somebody for five years and then getting a year and a half of good play and then getting hurt and then being you know crappy after that so they're doing that at all positions. It's not just quarterback. But uh, the the market already got inflated big time with that. And the owners have are trying to make it clear that Deshaun Watson's $200 million guaranteed is not going to be the new standard. They are not going to pay quarterbacks guaranteed $200 million. You're not doing it. And Lamar was like, I want my money. I want to get it. Right? And that's that's his right. But he's not going to get it. <laughs> that's I think that's been made abundantly clear since free agency officially opened uh, a month ago. Officially, officially. Of, of course, there was people agreeing to deals and things like that before that, but they couldn't officially sign the papers until about a month ago. I think that's been made extremely clear that nobody is going to come near his number. You know, if if Lamar, if you want your your twenty, he'll be twenty six years old this season. He'll be twenty six years old, and you know, Lamar, find the deal, take the money, and hope that you stay healthy and can continue to contribute and get paid again. 
But other than that, you're going to have to take it. You're going to have to lower that number. Nobody is going to pay you that money. And I, and this could come back to be a freezing cold take, and maybe somebody will, but I, I just do not see it happening. I do not see it happening. Uh, you you don't see quarter you don't see quarterbacks on the open market very much at all like good ones right you don't see good quarterbacks on the open market very much at all the most teams when a good quarterback hits the open market you're going to the, that agent is going to get 25 calls right it's if, if a good if a good quarterback actually hits free agency there are going to that phone is going to be lighting up and I'm sure there have been people that have called Lamar. They've checked in. He said, I want $200 million. And they've said, have a nice day. It's, it's not happening. It's not happening. And so there's, there's all these other, again, back to that claim of racism against Lamar Jackson. You know, without going too much deeper into that, it, 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 it's asinine. I think if you have a brain, you know that, that it's asinine. And so there's another, I mean, just just another simple fact to that. Lamar Jackson won an MVP in 2019 at the age of 22. He is going into his age 26 season. He has had three seasons since that MVP season. He has regressed across the board in every season since then. Since the MVP campaign, he has regressed in every category and has failed to stay healthy the last two seasons. They play 17 games in 2021 and 2022 uh, in the regular season. He missed five games last year, the last five games, and a playoff game. In 2021, he missed five games. The Ravens went 8-4 and four last year, 7-5 and five the year before that, 11-4 in 2020. He played 15 games in 2020, but he regressed. His, his QBR went down, his completion percentage went down, his yards per game went down, his... Uh, everything. I could just sit here and read down. I got the stats in front of me. I could just sit there and read down them. I'm not going to bore you with them, but you'll have to take my word for it that everything went down. Passing touchdowns, total touchdowns, completions, everything went down from the MVP year and has continued to trend down. And he is a, he's a difference maker. He's an exciting player to watch, and he's, and he's a great player. He's just not worth $200 million. And it's as simple as that he is a running quarterback. He's a skinny running quarterback. One hit and his career is over. One hit. That's all it takes. It doesn't matter who you are. It does not matter who you are. It does not matter what kind of physical specimen you are. Bo Jackson, one hit is all it takes for your career to be over. And it's $200 million for a average passer and an absolutely elite freak of nature athlete you know for uh, with his legs and on the ground top tier not nobody's ever going to argue that uh, against that but for an average passer 200 million ain't gonna happen for a guy that relies on so much with his legs so much to happen with his legs and is predicated on athleticism speed burst acceleration all that so much of so much of his success is predicated around that and built around that and when you have a guy who has had back-to-back seasons of missing i mean five games you go ah, five, he missed five games he missed five games in the last two seasons five games is 30 percent of the season you know give or take it's 
it's over a quarter, right? That's significant. That's significant. You you can't have a piece being paid two hundred million dollars that might play two thirds of the games. You you just can't. And Lamar, I don't know how this is going to end. I don't know if he if he tucks his tail and he's back to to Baltimore. They signed uh, Odell Beckham Jr. the other day. The Ravens did that saga finally ended. Um, you know, is that, is that an intriguing enough piece for Lamar to take less money to, to end, end this and come back? Is the relationship between him and the coaches in the front office completely severed, fractured and, and irreparable? I don't know, but it's sure he sure isn't going to hit that price. And is there really another place for him at this point? There's been a lot of established, you know, guys are moving around. We're still waiting on the Rodgers and Jets, uh, you know, all that to get sorted. Sounds like the Packers are really holding stuff up there, but we're waiting on that to get sorted. But is there, you know, is there a place for him? Is there a team that is going to sign him? Lamar is his only option. I mean, Baltimore, that's exactly what Baltimore did when they let him hit free restricted free agency because they can still match offer sheets. Um, since they, I, I call it restricted free agency because that's probably the best way to describe it. It's the restricted franchise tag or whatever. Uh, but they said, go ahead, Lamar. See if anybody else will pay you the money. We still reserve the right to match, but go ahead. See. Go check. Go see. Nobody has. Nobody has. And it sounds like nobody's been close. I'm, And I, like I said... There's because there's all these conflicting reports. I don't even know if anybody's even officially submitted any kind of offer to him at all. So he's just dangling out there. And I don't know, maybe the most likely scenario is that he does end up back in Baltimore and he's going to have to take a lot less money than he thought he was going to get. Still a hell of a lot of money. I think that's the thing that, that blows me the way the most is, of course, you want to get the most money. And if a guy signed a guaranteed two hundred million, you want to take your shot at getting that. But it should have been pretty clear that it should have been pretty clear to him pretty early that that wasn't going to happen, and that look, man, you're twenty six. You might get paid again. This might be the last deal you get. You never know. His his career might might go down. And I'm not wishing for that to happen. He's an exciting player. He's awesome. I like Lamar Jackson. Uh. You know, Michael Vick, same vein, right? Exciting. But he, he's a running quarterback. The lifespan isn't long. And, you know, take take what you can get. You know, first of all, he should hire a real agent. That's not even a question. He should hire a real agent. Uh, but take take whatever ridiculous guaranteed money cuz i'm sure it's you know a lot of 140 150 160 170 million that is fully guaranteed to him i mean that that's generational wealth that is your great 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 grandchildren are taken care of right so long as nobody does anything absolutely asinine with the money right that is that is generational you are you know it it is hundreds of years before that money's gone you know, uh, so long as, uh, so long as everybody, you know, does their part and takes care of it and you, you know, good investments, all that, whatever. Right. And that's just, that's just contract money. 
That's that's you know right. That's not even included. That's not including what he's already made. That's not including the endorsement deals as an exciting player with 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 that. I, I'm sure he's got a, a plethora of of endorsement deals. That's not even including all that. I mean, we're you know we're in the hundreds of millions of dollars here. It's take your money, take care of your body, see what you can do to stay healthy, and when it's time for another contract, because it'll probably be like a four year deal, right? When it's time for another contract, you'll be 30. See if you can get some more. The quarterback market, hell, you know, maybe maybe by the time you're 30, even if you regress and everything, you're still able to get 140 more million dollars. You know, right? Like it, it or or maybe you're still playing at an extremely high level. You've you've gotten better. Maybe you're playing at an extremely high level. You hit 30 years old, get another 400 or uh, four-year deal and the quarterback market is higher at that time in four years and you go get yourself another 200 million dollars right it's it's we're we, whenever we do, you know all this bickering about contracts and sports media and everything just continues to blow my mind i hate to, to play that card it's, it sounds like a boomer take of it because it's so much money but it really is man it's so much money you know and i understand that you want to get the most out of it everybody would be at, at, at the sort of elite talent level that they have they're they're all worldly uh talented and and they want to get every you know every per- person wants to get every penny that you can but where is the line where you just go you know what you know where's the line where you go all right what's the difference between 160 and 180 million dollars man like, let me get 160 and uh, I'll find $20 million worth of endorsement deals. You know, like, geez, uh, just just get your secure your bag before something goes wrong. You know, that's another thing, right, is is that that would terrify me in that spot is Lamar. I'm sure is still working out, staying in shape, going running football drills, workouts, lifting weights, whatever he's doing. What if something happens? What if, what if he's out there in a training session or he goes for a jog and tears his freaking ACL, breaks his ankle, falling down the stairs, tripping over his dog, whatever. It's, it's happened. You know, it sounds stupid, but it's happened. And it's like, you're not under a deal. Like you're under the restricted franchise tag, but you're not under the guaranteed deal and everything. What if that happens? Right. That impacts your market. You know, ACL is not the death sentence that it once was, but it's going to impact your market. That money going down, you tear your ACL. It's certainly going down. You break your ankle. And I I just I find it. I just find the whole thing ridiculous. It's like, Lamar, if you've had an offer sheet on the table for like 160 guaranteed, take it. It's guaranteed. It's contractually guaranteed. Take it. Take it, you're under contract. You don't have to worry about tripping over your dog or, or tearing your ACL when you go for a run. It, it, you don't, right? It, I mean, this can happen. It can happen to anybody. It doesn't matter who, how elite of an athlete you are. It can happen to anybody at any time. And I just find it so ins- insane. So anyway, that's my Lamar rant. I think um, he's not getting that money. We'll see how that plays out. But it's just, it, it seemed so, so, uh, insane to me to to have dragged it out this long to have dragged it out this long and not have a deal done so we'll say i god knows when that'll get done or or what'll happen there but uh i i just i just find it uh find it hard to believe that that he's uh he's quibbling this much over over the over the figures 
you know, get the sign the paper, get your money, get to work. That's that's kind of my my opinion on that with athletes. It doesn't even it you know it doesn't matter the sport. We've seen this in baseball. We've seen this. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of a it's a it's a thing. It's a thing on both sides of the table too for for the owners. In football, obviously, being a very different story with the with the way guys get hurt, and you want to get to be and the salary cap. Baseball is an entirely different story. So baseball, it infuriates me when owners, in particular, are qu- quibbling over little amounts of money, uh, at little amounts of money, and I'm of course talking about twenty or thirty million dollars. But you know, there's no there's no there's no like actual hard cap. You know, you get luxury taxed, but there's no hard cap that that you have to stay under or anything like that in major league baseball. So of course I went through my own drama as a Yankees fan with the Aaron judge free agency last year, thinking judge was going to the giants at one point, shout out to arson judge and, and uh, John Heyman. Uh, but the, uh, you know, the deal there, I sat there was like, Hey, Hal Steinbrenner, you owned the New York Yankees. If you ever wanted to get out from underneath the Yankees, you could sell them for $10 billion, right? It's the prices of sports teams, the, the, the commanders have, there's been an agreed sale that has to go through all the process that it does. But for $6 billion, Dan Snyder's going to sell them. That's the Washington commanders. Can you imagine the dollar figure that the Yankees could get? Right. So specifically the reason I say that. It is because that was about like you know Hal Steinbrenner here, and, and and they didn't get a deal done before the season last year, and he had that incredible season. You go into the off season, it's taken a while for this, and there's all these rumors, and he's going to San Francisco, and he's talking to San Diego, and all these teams are calling about him, and it's like, and it what it essentially came down to was that Hal's offer for was eight years, three hundred and twenty million dollars, and what he ended up signing for was nine years, three hundred and sixty million dollars. And to me, during that whole saga, to to compare this to, or to piggybacking off of what we we're talking about with Lamar, was that like from an owner perspective, when when you have uh, you don't have a hard salary cap, that was like, what are we doing here? It's forty million dollars. It's an extra year on the deal. You've been paying him peanuts the last six years. Do it, right? And he did. And. You know, thank God, as a Yankees fan, it would have sucked to lose him. But it's like, you know, get get the deal done. It's forty million dollars here. What do we? What do we? You're you're talking about forty million on a three hundred plus million dollar contract. Pay him what he wants and get it done. And for Lamar, on the other side of that, because it's football and they do have a hard cap that has to be considered, and the the injury risks and all the stuff being so much greater, and especially for the type of football player, it's like Lamar. This is a like I said, I don't know the specific numbers because nobody does. There's been all these numbers flying around. But realistically, let's say Lamar's looking for $200 million and the and the Ravens, guaranteed that is, and the Ravens have offered him 170 guaranteed or something. It's like, Lamar, this is $170 million. Let the 30 go. Stay healthy and collect the rest of the contract that isn't guaranteed. Right? Because it'll, be it'll be a $230 million contract, $70 million guaranteed. Go collect the stay healthy and collect the rest of the deal, and don't freaking worry about it. It's one hundred seventy million dollars. You can buy three hundred Lamborghinis with that money, <laughs> right? Like, God. So that's my that's my that's my Lamar Jackson discussion. <clears throat> Let me take a drink of water here, real quick, and we'll get into the next thing. 
on our list, which is a little NHL playoff preview. All right. NHL playoff preview time. Let's talk about this here for a couple of minutes. Uh, we've got the first round of the playoff set. We've got eight best of seven series. And once again, I'm going to repeat this probably three or four times before the, our little hockey discussion is done. But if you are not a big NHL fan, if you barely follow anything or, or don't know much about it, I cannot encourage you enough to watch the NHL playoffs. The NHL playoffs might be the most intense, frantic, edge-of-your-seat stuff in all of sports, as far as you know, any, any playoff stuff goes. I mean, you know, you talk about, you look at, you look at the uh, god-awful product that uh, the NBA is and everything. An eight seed in the NBA never beats a one seed. Never. In any round of the playoffs. Never. It's, ne it's literally never happened. Never happened. It happens in hockey. Teams go down three games to zero in baseball and basketball. It's over. Series is over. Nobody has ever come back from 3-0 in the NBA. And it's happened once in a hundred. What are we at on baseball? Uh, almost 150 years once. In hockey, happens all the time. It's, it's, it's not uncommon. The NHL playoffs are, they're, they're just, they're so exciting. There's so many different factors uh, that go into them. And I cannot recommend to you enough uh, to check, uh, to check them out. So, that being said, let's talk about this a little bit. The uh, Over in the Eastern Conference, the Florida Panthers are taking on the Boston Bruins. The Panthers are the eighth seed, and the Bruins are the one seed. I'm going to read them like that. The, the top seed will be the second team that I read in each matchup, or the higher seed. Uh, the Bruins are coming off of a truly historic season in the NHL. They set the record for the most uh, wins in a single season in NHL history. They set the record. Uh, it had been tied several times, I believe. It had never been, uh, that that number had never been surpassed. I think, what was it, 62 was the number. And um, hold on, let me check real quick here. Yeah, it was, I believe it was 62, and the, the Bruins won 65 games? Hold on. NHL record for wins in a season. I think it was 62. I just want to be right about that. Um, or no, sorry. It was 64. My apologies. I got that mixed up. It was 64. They won 65 games. They went 65 and 12 and 5. Truly, uh, truly unbelievable. An unbelievable season. I mean, that's... That's very akin to, you know, the Golden State Warriors went 73 and 9. They beat the 72 and 10 mark from those 96 Bulls that nobody thought would ever get touched. Um the the Bruins are the absolute odds on favorites in uh, in this playoff uh session here. These these playoffs for the NHL. That being said, uh 
you know, I, I think you'd probably have to be crazy to choose somebody else to to beat Boston or to or to you know that that's going to win the cup that's not Boston uh, because of how strong they are. But that being said, those seventy three and nine Warriors did not win the NBA championship. There have been plenty of MLB teams that won a hundred five, a hundred and ten games. They look unstoppable. They lose in the first round. Happened last year, Dodgers. The Bruins, the pressure is on them. I'll say that. The pressure is on them to win the Stanley Cup because they have won 65 games. They have set the record. The pressure is very, very, very high. And every team that plays them throughout the playoffs is going to be coming for their heads. They want to be the team that beat the Bruins. They beat the, the, the winningest season in NHL history. They beat them. They, they sent them packing. They want to be the team to do it. So those two things combined definitely make for some very interesting theater in these playoffs. Because it's not unheard of. And I, there was a statistic about how uh, every team that had won 64 games lost in the first round in in the playoffs. So I don't know if that'll happen against the Florida Panthers here for the Boston Bruins, but the pressure is immense on them. And every team that plays them is figuring, you know, they, they are motivated. It's not, well, we're just going to roll over and die for Boston. It's we want to be the team to knock them off. We want to be etched in the history books too, and uh, so that you know that that brings that brings an additional layer of pressure to Boston. That being said, moving to the next matchup uh, in the first round, the New York Islanders take on the Carolina Hurricanes. The Islanders, the seven seed, the Hurricanes, the two seed, the New York Rangers, the five seed, will be taking on the New Jersey Devils, the three seed. And the six seed Tampa Bay Lightning will be taking on the four seed Toronto Maple Leafs. Over in the Western Conference, the Winnipeg Jets are the eight seed and the first seed in the West, the Vegas Golden Knights. The Los Angeles Kings in the fifth seed take on the Edmonton Oilers. The Seattle Kraken in the seventh seed take on my Dallas Stars in the third seed. And the Minnesota Wild at the sixth seed will take on the four seeded Colorado Avalanche. That's our uh, first round, first round matchup uh, in uh, the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs. The first game of the first round, the first games of the first round start on April seventeenth. It is April fifteenth. So uh, yeah, again, as I as I recommend, um, or as I recommended to start off this, the, you know, getting into this, watch the NHL playoffs. They're so good. Uh, they're so very worth watching. Even if you don't watch the, the regular season all year, you know, pick your local team, pick a team you like, some players you like, whatever. Root for somebody and, uh, you know, get 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 to going on the games. They're, you know, get watching the games. They are so worth it. Seven game series in each, uh, in each uh, round. You know, no five game series or anything like that. So uh, the first, you, you got your first round. Uh, first round of playoffs here. Then you got your conference semifinals, your conference finals, and your Stanley Cup. And, uh, 
you know, these obviously these playoffs will be going on for a while, but uh, they are most certainly worth watching. And uh, I will most definitely be counted as one of those viewers um, on April 17th. So again, uh, or, or back to the actual, you know, specifics here. The Bruins went 65 and 12 uh, with um, five overtime uh, losses. And, um, <laughs> excuse me. And, uh, oops, I lost the, there we go. Uh, they, they absolutely dominated uh, in the Eastern Conference. Uh, Carolina went 52 21 and nine overtime losses. So, I mean, that tells you the gap right there. The Bruins won 13 more games than second place in the Eastern Conference. And first place in the West was Vegas, and they won 51 games. Uh, so the Eastern Conference is most definitely quite loaded um, in comparison to the West. Uh, as well, Carolina winning 52 games. The Devils won 52 games. The Maple Leafs won 50 games. That's And so that rounds off your top four with Boston, of course, at top of 65. Over in the West, 51-game uh, winner Knights, 50-game uh, winner Oilers, and 51-game Avalanche. And then my stars in fourth over there with 47 uh, wins on the season. So I think most people would be surprised to see a Western Conference winner um, compared to uh, compared to how the, the East has been done. But uh, yeah, the Bruins really just have that target on their heads. Uh, I believe this was the first time since they'd been in the league, I think, that both the Washington Capitals and the... Uh, Pittsburgh Penguins missed the playoffs, uh, or Sidney Crosby and Alexander Ovechkin, but by extension, their teams. Uh, so we will not be seeing Ovechkin work his magic in the playoffs or Sidney Crosby try to lead the Penguins to another title uh, in, during his tenure. But uh, So that's definitely uh, unfamiliar territory. And the Toronto Maple Leafs that uh, can't seem to ever win anything are going to have their crack at things with a 50-win season. So we'll... We'll see how they fare in the playoffs. Uh, let's see. Outside that down here, I mean, the Blackhawks is, boy, that's a that's an interesting, uh, you know, if, if you followed the NHL, like, like I've, you know, full disclosure with me, I followed the NHL really heavily, like watched tons of games every night and knew, you know, damn near who everybody was and all the teams. A while back, probably hasn't been like that for me for about, seven or eight years that, that I did that. I've, I've, I've sort of morphed into a casual fan who watches, um, watches a couple of games a week, maybe, uh, has them around or, and pays, I pay attention, you know, to what's going on. I pay attention to who the good teams are. I, I pay attention to the stars. I also root for the, the New York Rangers, but you know, so I, I pay attention to what they're doing. Watch a game. I try to go to a couple of games a year. I didn't get to one this year. But uh, I, I I try to go to a couple of games a year and stuff and, uh, you know, kind of turn into a more casual fan. That being said, though, if you have been a fan at all over the last, oh, what are we at now? 10, 12 years, you know, the Blackhawks, quite a run. And the players that they had, Kane, Taves, like uh, Kane was traded uh, midway through the season this year. Taves was told that they would not be re-signing him. Uh, Taves is the captain, I think, of the Blackhawks. They 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 told him they would not be resigning him, uh, but they had 
quite a they they were uh, quite a formidable force for quite some time as a perennially good team and uh this year is rebuilding mode they won 26 games they lost 49 and they lost seven in overtime and they were 15th 15th in uh in the western conference uh second to last only only the ducks were worse um from a from a total points points view and uh it's it's rebuilding time, but it's truly a it's that's truly a very odd thing to see, is seeing uh, seeing Chicago all the way at the bottom like that. It's a storied franchise, and and uh, they they had have had quite a run of success. Uh, maybe not so much in the recent recent years. When was their last championship? Uh, they uh, let's see, let's check it out. Their last Stanley Cup was the 2014-15 season. So it's been a few years since since um, since reaching the Stanley Cup, but they had quite a run there, uh, late 2000 uh, into the 2000s into the 2010s. They had quite a run there, and and led by led by those uh, those players uh, that meant uh, meant so much to them. Um, or were, were so important to their success there. And um, the there's another point I was going to make about them. Can't remember. <laughs> the oh, that's what it was. Sorry. A little dead air there. But the uh, the Blackhawks, uh, of course, they I, I I if you are a Blackhawks fan out there I wouldn't be uh wouldn't be too worried I don't think because they they should be able to find themselves uh back on top at some point especially with the recent success and kind of re entering themselves into a uh to an elite conversation because I believe they had a very long championship drought let me say yeah they did they won a, a cup in 1960 1961 and uh, they didn't win one for 50 years uh, until 2010 and uh, but you know they won three in that span with the core that they had and uh, sort of re you know re-entered the conversation of, a, of an elite uh, hockey team and uh, or you know an elite organization but uh, you know hopefully they uh as as a sort of neutral party there hopefully the the fans are able to get through this rough period and that things start to look a bit brighter for them uh at some point because i uh, i think every sports fan no no matter the sport has gone through a rough period where your team sucks you're in rebuilding and and it, you go you go quite a while without tasting any success but it makes it all that much sweeter when you when you finally do again so uh you know, for Blackhawks fans out there, it's the end of an era, but uh, uh, most certainly. But uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully that uh, that success you had that you got to taste in those Stanley Cups were tasted good, and and you'll get to taste some more uh, some more success soon after they get back on their feet. But that's just the cycle of things. But it's a it's an interesting thing I thought worth noting and and discussing there a little bit because, uh, you know, it's it's not every day that that one of the powers falls 
right? Because you you always have a your periods. It's kind of like the New England Patriots, right? Brady leaving to, to to the Buccaneers, Patriots sort of entering a rebuilding mode and and having to to build around another quarterback and stuff. But it's not every day that one of the titans uh, of sustained success. Uh, because a lot of times with sports teams, sometimes you have a flash in the pan. You have a team that's good for two or three years, no matter what the sport is. Other times you have ones that are set up really well and built for success over a long period of time. And and the Blackhawks were one of them. So to watch one of those Titans go down is uh, not something that happens every day. All right. Moving on to the next bit of uh, discussion. going to kind of recap here probably not going to go on too long about this but going to kind of recap um the recent nascar races since we haven't we haven't done an, an episode in six weeks uh we haven't talked about anything since i think las vegas or auto club and which uh was several races ago and uh i thought let's see yeah, Las Vegas. Vegas was meh. I, so the next-gen car showed some promise last year at mile-and-a-half tracks like Las Vegas and Charlotte and, well, not really Texas. Texas still sucks. Uh, it showed some promise at some mile-and-a-halfs last year. It hasn't looked that strong this year. Um, Las Vegas was a pretty forgettable race. I believe Vegas was who won Vegas. Tyler Reddick. See, oh, I clicked on Auto Club. Uh, Las Vegas. No, William Byron. Sorry, William Byron won Las Vegas. Uh, I think he won at Phoenix the next week. Yep, Phoenix was very mid as well. Atlanta. Uh, restrictor played Atlanta. Uh, Joey Logano won. Watching that race, so uh, that's that's what I wanted to hit on. Was there was really three races I wanted to talk about out of the last uh, six or seven here. So there was Vegas, Phoenix, Atlanta, Circuit of the Americas down in Austin, Richmond, and Bristol Dirt. The ones I really want to talk about uh, in particular were Atlanta, Circuit of the Americas, and Bristol Dirt. So Atlanta, Atlanta with the restrictor plates, and the track is just not built for restrictor plate racing. It's like as much as I as I was kind of intrigued by it last year, watching this race, because there'll be another one this year, watching this race, it's just not, the, the track is not built for restrictor plate racing, for pack racing. There's not any space. There's no way to get by anybody. It's, it's not like Daytona and, and Talladega. You go down the back stretch or you got those wide corners and the, and the wide back straightaway and everything. And you can make your runs and get at people and drag the third line with you. There's not any space at Atlanta. The Joey Logano won the race and it was anticlimactic as all hell. You know, it, 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 they're... There's no space. You can't get a run. You can't dive below somebody or above somebody to, to make your move and all that stuff. It's not there. It's not there. I don't I don't really know what they're they're stuck with the configuration now. Uh, but I don't really you can't do anything. You can't extend the racing surface. 
you can't make it wider. So, yeah, Atlanta, I don't really know what to say. I don't know what to I don't know what to say there. You you can't you can't make the race you can't make the track wider uh, at this point. The racing surface wider, not without some serious cost serious serious cost going into that. Uh that's not going to happen because they already had the cost incurred for changing this configuration in the first place. Atlanta was in a weird spot. It was like because the the car had been performing so poorly, the cars have been performing so poorly and the race is so boring uh over the last 10 years. Uh, or so shout out to the car of tomorrow uh, that they felt like they needed to do something. They decided to do this. I just don't really know where you go from here though, uh, because it's just, there's just, there's no room to pass. There's no, there's no room to make moves. It's very difficult. It's very congested. And that's all compounded by the stupid rear view mirror camera that they have in the cars that makes it ridiculously easy to block runs. Uh, and everything and makes the racing worse at every track in every scenario. So I think they need to rip that out of the cars. Um, the, I don't really know where they go from here with, with that. Um, again, I wish NASCAR would just figure out whatever the packages, the arrow, but the, and the, and the engine packages, everything that they had to do racing at mile and a half and racing at every track was so good through the through the mid 90s to the basically the gen 4 car mid 90s to 2007 there was great racing genuine racing at every track on the circuit you know maybe they had some problems with tweaks and things they did at various times but just as an overall product it was so good and I need them to figure it the hell out because the tracks haven't really changed. I mean, you know, there's there's arguments for sealers or and and repaves and all that that change the, the surface of the track changes. But like, man, figure it out. It 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 just seems so ridiculous. It it just I could go on and on about this forever, but downforce is the problem. It's you got to I I I would love to see I need to see them knock the rear spoiler down very low knock that thing down super low that rear spoiler and uh make those cars even harder to drive and that you know slicker harder to drive make those drivers work uh make skill come into it the next gen car's done a little bit of that better than it, it's doing it better than its predecessor did but man they 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 got to they just got to figure something out with with the overall because it it it's it they should they should see they they should see this um and i just don't know why the, the they don't they can't figure it out uh because it, it, the solution to me seems so damn simple um Circuit of the Americas. The only thing I really wanted to cover there, so that's of course the road course down in Austin, Texas. Um, originally built for, you know, sort of open wheel um, racing, but NASCAR has come there. Uh, the Cup Series has come there. Uh, they have the hairpin turn in turn one, and they have a hairpin in I think like turn eleven or something like that down the track the other way. 
But the hairpin turn in turn one, anybody that watched the race, it was a great race. They t- uh, NASCAR changed the stage rules, which I hope they do for oval tracks too. They changed the stage rules. There's there's uh, three stages in every NASCAR race, if you're not aware. The first stage, uh, first stage, second stage are stopped by cautions, by just cautions when the laps of the stage have been run. Third stage, of course, the end of the stage is the end of the race. But and the third stage is always longer than the first two stages. You know, if a race was 400 laps, they'd make the first stage 50 laps uh, or 40 laps. The second stage 70 laps, and the last stage 100 and you know 180 or whatever it is at that point. They'd, they'd make it a lot longer, but or 150 laps. Right, first stage is 50 laps, second stage is 100 laps, and the last stage is 150, something like that. That's how they'd work it out. And um but they throw the cautions and what that does is it guarantees the cautions and teams strategize around it. They strategize around the cautions and NASCAR did that because they wanted to try to create more excitement cars bunched up and um, passing and beating on each other and all that stuff. And they wanted to do that. They, they, however many years ago that they introduced stages, they need to go. They need the stages have got to go. And as far as road courses go, they have gone. They no longer throw cautions at the, they still have stages because there's points. That's how the point that's part of the point system. You get points for winning stages. The, the stages are still there at road courses, but the cautions, they didn't throw cautions at the end of the stages. And it made for an interesting race and a good race. It was a very good race until about the last 10 laps. It was still a good race overall. But the last 10 laps, there's just there was a lot of discussion about lack of respect amongst drivers these days. And the garage, especially a lot of the younger guys and everything, just beating the hell out of cars, knocking, punting people out of the way. No respect for your competitors. And that was on full display at uh, Coda because of the circuit of the Americas, because of that hairpin turn, turn one, you get it. There was a caution with about 10 to go and they do a restart and they all get down there and they're all slamming into each other, throwing each other out of the way, spinning out. And there's another caution. And we get down to the green, white checker time, you know, where you get two laps, you throw the green flag, you go around one lap, white flag, you go around one lap into the race. When the, if a caution comes out during the white flag lap, the final lap, the race is over. And the, the field is frozen and the race is over. You finish where you finish at that point. If, it, if a caution comes out during the first lap of the green-white checker, when there's two laps to go, they reset the field, they re-rack the balls, and they break them again. And there were three, if I remember correctly, three restarts at the Circuit of the Americas uh, at, the, at the end of the race for green-white checker because they would go down into the hairpin turn in turn one and they'd slam off of each other, no respect, punt each other the hell out of the way, spin each other out, you know, every all that other crap because of the way the turn is designed and that these cars don't move the way that the, the open wheels do and that the way that our restarts are, uh, double file and the location of it on the track. But um, it was kind of embarrassing at the end of the race because there were a lot of eyes on that race because it was Circuit of the Americas. There was Jordan Taylor was driving um, Chase Elliott's nine car because he was injured, broke his leg in a, in a snowboarding accident. Um, so Jordan Taylor is a sports car driver. 
Uh, he drives for Corvette and, you know, drives, drives road courses for Corvette in, uh, and IMSA and, you know, uh, all the sports car, uh, sports car racer. So there was eyes on for that. And he was doing very well. Uh, he was, I think he was going to get a top 10, the last restart with all the chicanery in turn one with the, with the, the BS of everybody bouncing off of each other. He checked up in there. I think he ended up getting like a 17th or something, but he was in line for, for a top 10. He was going to get one. He, he was doing a great job. And, uh, Kimmy Rakuten, I think is how you pronounce his name. Uh, an F1, former F1 champion, I, I believe. He was in the race. He was in. He was in a car. And uh, hold on, let me get the race results up, and I'll give you. Yeah, Kimi Rakkonen. Sorry, not Rakkonen. Rakkonen, and Jordan Taylor and Jensen Button. Yes, another. Uh, uh I think is Jensen Button an F one champ or is he a indie? hold on Jensen Button my apologies he is yeah he's a F1 champion as well uh so there were there were some eyes on the race we had you know we had an IMSA sports car driver two F1 champs uh there were some eyes on the race and it was kind of embarrassing at the end uh to me for NASCAR to have the, the green white checker and these guys just throwing each other around with you know zero respect or or anything to, for one of for one another at the end because of course that's not how they race in F1 or in sports cars and everything it's about racing you don't make contact with the other drivers you 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 race your line and you find a way you find your speed and pass them and there ain't nothing wrong with with beating about I love beating and banging in NASCAR absolutely you know, who doesn't love a little, you know, some tapping and some door slamming and, you know, all that good stuff. Uh, that's stock car racing. That's that's what it's all about. But it was a little embarrassing for just the, for the way that for the way that that was at the end of the race, regardless, because that that, you know, that just was there wasn't really they're playing bumper cars down into turn one. Basically, it was just who can slam it in there on the inside line, bounce off of somebody and keep going and, and for more positions or whatever it was, it was kind of embarrassing. So that that's uh that's what I'll say about, about that. Um, but it was cool to see those guys driving in the, in the series and Jordan Taylor afterwards. I specifically, I really like Jordan Taylor. He's a great guy. He's funny, uh, fun to follow on social media and everything. And, a and a, a great personality, but he, uh, he basically said like, uh, because I saw early in the race, there was some spots where he was very timid himself on those restarts when they had restarts after cautions and things, he was kind of timid going down there into, into turn one and the way that he would race people, especially early on, he qualified extremely well. I believe he started, uh, fourth, uh, he, he qualified very well. Yeah, he did. He, he qualified fourth and, um, he has never driven a NASCAR before. He'd never driven a NASCAR before. He qualified fourth, uh, beating out all all these other guys. And uh, I mean, of course, he had a very good car. Chase Elliott, Hendrick Motorsports. He had a very good car, but he qualified fourth. Uh, that was very impressive. But he quickly fell back uh, in the in the race because of when it came to the actual racing. But as the race went on. That's what he started to pick up positions. He, you know, he fell back to about 17th, I think, uh, you know, early on in the race. 
but he started to pick up positions. And he, like I said, he worked his way into the top 10 again. And by the end of the race, he was in the top 10. He'd raced his way because he kind of got used to, okay, you know, you, you might have to bump people and, you know, it's a different, completely different style of racing. You might have to move somebody out of the way and you might have to, you got to be a lot more aggressive basically than, than they are in those other series. And uh, yeah, he just kind of got screwed out of that. He got screwed out of that top 10 uh, at the end there because of the, because of all the BS he got, he basically, I remember watching it and they had the overhead view and he went down into there and he got checked up behind a bunch of people and he was caught in the middle with cars on his outside cars on his inside, slipped back, finished, finished in the late low teens, like 17, 18. But that finishing position was not indicative at all of his performance in the race. He did very well. Uh, but uh, he himself basically said the, the same thing, being like, well, I kind of learned as the race went on that how different style of racing this is. This is very different. And that nobody really does have that respect for one another. They will beat you and bang you out of the way and they don't care. And that it's a, it's a very different style. He wasn't necessarily saying that that was bad. Right. He, he was just saying that, like, this was very different. And this is the style. This is how you guys race over here. And it's not what I was used to. But we got better as we went on and all that stuff. And, and would definitely, he said he'd like to do it again. So uh, I'd love to see him get another shot in a, in a NASCAR, whether he's in Xfinity or in the Cup Series. And then the next thing I wanted to talk about with NASCAR to kind of uh, wrap it up here, is, wrap up the whole show, is the Bristol Dirt Race. The Bristol Dirt Race has got to go. Uh, myself like a million other nascar fans if you're going to run a dirt race do it at a dirt track don't take bristol which is one of your best tracks and put dirt on it that's just dumb do not take one of your best tracks and put dirt on it go to an actual dirt track they say, well, logistically, we have a hard time finding a place that could do NASCAR. Put the money into it, NASCAR. If you're that worried about the logistics of doing a dirt track, put the money into it, figure it out. But it's not... The race was okay. You know? I'm not going to sit here. It wasn't awful. It, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. It wasn't awful. But it, it, it also wasn't great. And... It's it's been what three years of Bristol dirt now. It's a gimmick. It's dumb. Uh, they they really just need to. Uh, they really need to to put that back the way that it was. If you want to do a dirt race, go to a freaking dirt track. Do not put dirt on one of your best tracks, and uh, and and booger it up basically. And uh, there's all sorts of. You know, Christopher Bell won the race. He is a dirt racer. Um, he's a, he's a, he, or his background is dirt. So a dirt racer finally won the dirt race. That's what they were all talking about last year. It was Kyle Busch. He, he sort of luck, he lucked his way into it because the second place took out both himself and the leader in turn four. So, uh, Kyle Busch just in third place just came around and won the race. Logano won the, the initial one in 2020, I think. I can't remember who won it in, in 2021, but uh, or I guess it was, sorry, it was 2021 was the first one. Logano won it. Uh, but Christopher Bell won the race. He's a background in dirt racing. Uh, Larson was extremely strong until he got uh, taken out by uh, 
uh, Ryan Priest, I think. That's a whole other thing, too. He got, Larson got taken out of the race by Priest. That was, um, seemed pretty ridiculous, but, um, for Priest feeling as though he was slighted early in the race. And, and so he took him out later, which was, it was pretty chicken, chicken, you know what? But, uh, uh, Christopher Bell won the race. The two the two best guys were definitely Larson and, and Bell as far as dirt racing goes, and, and Bell won. And uh, you know, it was a good race. Uh it was it, like or it was decent. I wouldn't okay, I wouldn't say good. Like I said, it wasn't great, it wasn't awful, it was decent, it was a decent race. But I they, it just the the regular Bristol is a better race, and they need to go back to that. It's kind of pure and simple. We got Martinsville coming up, another short track. Got Martinsville here. I hope that they've figured something out with the package here at Martinsville. Chase Elliott's coming back. That's big news. Uh, NASCAR's most popular driver, uh, having broken his leg in a snowboarding incident um, back in. Man, it was after the Daytona 500, right? Yeah, he. I don't think he's raced in anything else all year except the 500. Um. And uh, maybe Auto Club. No, it was Auto Club. He, he raced in the 500 in Auto Club, I think. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and then uh, he missed Vegas, Phoenix, Atlanta, Coda, Richmond, and Bristol. So he missed uh, six races. Uh, he is back uh, for Martinsville. Uh, I hope they've figured out the short track package and, is, and specifically for Martinsville because Martinsville, the spring race in Martinsville last year was absolutely awful with the new car. Boring, 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 awful, awful, awful. But uh, the the fall one was better. The fall one was quite a bit better. So hopefully we see that again t- um, tomorrow. And uh, yeah, if you want to watch that, that's on Fox Sports 1 tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 Central, and noon Pacific uh, at Martinsville. So I hope it's better than, uh, than last year's spring race. It should be. Uh, I think that that last year's fall race was pretty good. So uh, that's, of course, where Ross Chastain pulled the Hail Melon. And then we've got, if you're not a NASCAR fan, Sunday, April 23rd at 3 p.m. Eastern time, you need to tune in because it is the NASCAR Cup Series at Talladega Super Speedway, the famous Talladega Super Speedway, Talladega, Alabama. Uh, it, it is sure to be a hell of a race. We'll talk about it next week on the on the show when we lead into it and everything too. But um, definitely tune in to that if you are not a race fan or or, not, or don't know much about NASCAR and you'd like to watch a race, that's a race to watch. And as we get closer in uh, next month, the North Wilkesboro All-Star Race racing returns to North Wilkesboro for the first time since 1996. It is a classic uh NASCAR track was was a, an all-time track, and uh, they haven't raced there since 1996. It has been restored, and they will be racing the All-Star race there next month on Sunday, May 21st. So that is most definitely that is must-see TV. I will be watching every second of all the coverage of all that, and uh, we'll, we'll definitely talk more about that, talk about paint schemes because they're going to be running all kinds of special cars and stuff, and talk all about that when we get a little bit closer to that so that's going to wrap up our nascar coverage and that's going to wrap up the show itself the whole ding dang thing um listen i appreciate uh appreciate everybody that made it to this part of the show or that listened to any part of the show um 
very much appreciated on my end. I hope uh, hope it was enjoyed. And uh, of course, if you have any comments or anything to say, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Victory Cigar Pod, as well as uh, of course those that listen to the uh, the streams or anything can can give feedback over in the appropriate areas there. But uh, Victory Cigar Pod on Twitter, drop a follow on that if you would. Um, but yes, thank you very much for listening, everybody that made it to this point. Any comments, uh, you know where to direct them to me. I'd love to hear them. And uh, if you have, of course, any ideas for any segments or anything like that or anything you want to hear my opinion on or, or get discussed in the world of sports, um, you know, hey, let me know on that, too. Thank you very much. Follow me on Twitter at Victory Cigar Pod. Uh, we'll try to have an episode out next week. I'm sorry for the, for the long delay there uh, in between episodes. I'm, like I said, ve- I was very busy. Then I was out of town. Then I was sick and uh for for a while and and then here we are now so hopefully pumping these back out a little more regularly for you i I hope to have an episode for you next week as well so uh we'll catch you the next time uh thank you for listening to the victory cigar podcast